Hi, and thank you for tuning in. You know, I don't know anybody doesn't have a hard time understanding what leadership is about. It has changed in the 21st century. And because it has changed, you know, there's not a lot of information out there that pulls it all together so that you have the steps you need to be the best leader that you can. Leadership is all about influence. And this podcast is about helping you understand how to influence others and to build the collaborative team that provides you the inclusive, high-performing workplace that you are looking for. Whether this is the first job you've had as a leader, whether you're an individual contributor, or you've been in leadership for 30 years, there is something for you on this particular podcast. It's called Remarkable Leadership Lessons, shared by Denise Cooper and her friends. And if you like, you can always go over to my website and pick up other gems that will help you become a remarkable leader. Normally, I'm the one in the driver's seat uh, asking questions. And as you know, if you've been listening for a little while, I have two um, partners in crime here on one podcast will be um, Pam Brooks Richards and the other one will be Debbie Walsh Snow. Snow. And guess what? Today, Debbie is in the driver's seat. She wanted to ask questions live and raw. And um, we thought it was a great idea that at some point people get to ask me questions instead of me doing all the questions. So I'm going to let you know that, you know, if you've not listened to the podcast before, please go back. Debbie is now the chief talent officer for Brown and Brown Insurances. She has in her past owned businesses, worked for corporations. She's done both being our own boss and now you know, working with the team collaboratively to up the game of the talent in the organization that she's in now, Brown & Brown, which is a great company. So this morning, Debbie, how are you? I'm great, Denise. And I'm so excited to be able to flip the script, as you say, and ask a couple of questions of you, questions that I think are really important and usually provide great insights into candidates if you're interviewing them or just into people if you're trying to get to know them better and understand uh, their values without asking them flat out what their values are. Yeah. <laughs> so <are> your values. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what your values are, which in general, it's not what we think our values are. It's how we actualize them. How do, how do our behaviors align with them? And oftentimes that is not something that we think about. And so today's going to be a good one. The other part of this is, is that think of this podcast. So we're usually I wait till the end to say, here are the nuggets for it. But think of this time that you're spending with us and overhearing this private, intimate conversation as an opportunity for you to understand how not only to get to know somebody else, but to how to present yourself during interviews, because we're always being interviewed, whether we know it or not. Some of you, if you read my book, you know that I was in New York flying back to St. Louis. I happened to sit next to the president of a company. And by the time I got off the plane, and I didn't know this at all, he was just a guy who was sitting there and people were trying to put stuff in the overhead and it kept falling down on his head. And we started making jokes. But by the time I got back to St. Louis, he had offered me a job. You are always being interviewed. So it's not that you have to be conscious of it. But you do have to understand that every conversation, someone is evaluating you from the perspective of, do I want to know you? Can I help you? Can you help me? 
And you never know just because somebody's sitting next to you who they are in their life and why they would want to be friends with you. So be conscious. That's all I'm saying. Be conscious. And this is an opportunity for you to show if I am conscious, I'm not sure. But my friend Debbie will always tease out the best and the brightest in anyone that she works with. So I'm turning the mic over. Go for it. Okay. My name again is Debbie Walsh. I had talent for Brown and Brown. And I have owned, as Denise said, executive search firms with 10, you know, with 10 people working for me. I've dealt with search at the very senior level of Fortune 50 companies. That's my uh, sweet spot. And the other sweet spot is diversity and inclusion, which I've been doing since 1995. And I keep preaching to people that if we had done it right the first time, we wouldn't be doing it over, which we are. So I have two questions that I like to ask when I'm interviewing people, whether you're 22 and coming into your first job, whether you're 44 and mid-career, or whether you're 66 in the last quarter of your landings. And all of those ages are in many of the companies across the board because we need entry talent, we need mid-level talent, and we need the wisdom of older talent who has all of that intellectual property in any business that they're in, in their head. And as the baby boomers are retiring, if we don't transpose that information from the senior leaders or the mid-career leaders or the leaders who have been there for 20, 30, 40 years before they walk out the door, we're losing a huge amount of information. That's my little speech. Okay, here's the questions. My first question for you, Denise, is, and these questions are meant to make you think It's also meant for me as an interviewer to understand easily what makes you tick, what you value, what brings you to my interview table. So I want you to go back in time, Denise, do this for yourself. I want you to go back maybe in time, maybe it's now, but I want you to think about the place where you worked, where you felt you could do your best work because you felt respected. You felt that you had the intellectual capital to do the job in front of you. And because you worked with a collaborative team that allowed you to present the best in you, the best decision-making, the best actual tactical work, the best strategic work, and you could really shine because you had around you a team of people, a company of value within a company that allowed you to do your best work. You know, um, I'm probably, I, I tell people all the time, I'm a unique, I'm a unicorn. And and Debbie, you and I have had these conversations for a long time. I've been fortunate enough that every job that I held, every company that I've worked for, I've worked with people who are absolutely brilliant, heartfelt leaders. They may not have known how to do everything right, but man, they were in it for the right reasons. And I think the way they managed me was pretty unique in that for many of those jobs, I was the one, the only, or the first. And I think it was more telling in my, now that I can sit here at this age, this time in my life, it's more telling about them than it actually is about me. Because at the time, I didn't know what I didn't know. I was given assignments. I just did the best work I could do with those assignments. Did we get along all the time? No. Did we have differences of opinions? No. 
Was I opinionated and rough around the edges? Yeah. But I also think that I had a spirit of it can be done. And as you kind of opened up that, you know, you've been doing diversity, equity and inclusion since 95. I think that's kind of my journey all my life. But it's also people seem to back away from me and let me do my thing and then come around and they would gently guide me towards what I needed to think. It wasn't a command issue. The one time that I've run into that I can remember off the top of my head of working with someone who was extremely territorial and needed to be seen as the one with the bright ideas. Um, Actually, it's two times now that I think about it. One was I worked for a company, it was Monsanto, you all know I did. And one of the things they did was they groomed their HR people. And so they had this two-week, a week-long assessment of the HR people. And all of our my colleagues, same, same size, same, excuse me, same level, and a few younger, a few older were in this room. And we had to do these case studies over the week. And um, I was on a team of people, and there was this guy, and we got into it about what was the right thing to do from HR, from the heart's perspective, from the organizational goals perspective, the whole thing. And we got into a shouting match. Now, we were cloistered off. It was just our team. We were getting into this big shouting match. I actually didn't realize that we were in a shouting match, but everybody else seemed to think we were in a shouting match. And I'm, you know, my voice is one that carries all over the place. <laughs> and at the end, I don't think I, I can't remember whether my argument swayed the team to go forward or didn't sway the team to go forward or his argument, or we came up with some other little compromise out of it. But we got through the week and about a year later, um, we were doing a annual holiday kind of event or something like that. And three of the teachers for the class were just laughing, laughing, laughing. And I came over and this guy came over, the two of us came over and they were laughing at us. We didn't know it. And they, they divulged to us that they were all sitting outside the door. They could hear everything we were doing. They wanted to hear how we solve problems and how we were going to come together as a team to move forward. And that was the first time I realized that no matter where you're at, people who are invested in you are always watching you. They are in the background maneuvering things for you to open doors or close doors that are right, not right, et cetera. But they see things in you that you don't see in yourself. I was mortified when they told me that they heard us yelling and screaming. I don't know how you know my counterpart felt about knowing that he was screaming and hollering at me um, out of it, because I actually didn't think we were screaming and hollering. But after that, it, and I remember that next year, it was tense between the two of us because we had gone at it pretty deep on what was the right thing to do. And both of us wanted to win out of this. But that was the first lesson I got out of that. And so I didn't take the fact that he and I were kind of competitors um, in some way because I never felt like anybody could compete with me because I had a whole different thing going on. But I remember that moment. The other time is working with a senior level person who feels that they have to be right and that they have to show up as right and positive and I mean, they've got a lot of other stuff going on, but they have to do that and won't accept help. And as the head of HR, part of my job is to coach and help senior leaders be the best person. 
And and we just are like oil and water in it. And so I had to step back, let this person do their thing, not necessary to let them fail, but let them do their own thing until they came to the realization that even at the senior level, we are a team. And you need each of us, each department head to be successful. You know, we talk about we work in silos, but the reality is, is no organization really is a silo. You can set your goals, you can figure it out. But the most powerful, the best way to be is that you think about the people who are upstream from you or downstream from you in terms of the work that comes in it. And that was another lesson about teams that I learned. And that is the key to we don't have to like each other, but we have to find a way that we can respect the other person and keep a neutral feeling about them. Because I've told people all the time, even a broke clock is right twice a day. And the problem is we often don't know when it's actually right because we've dubbed that person, we've dubbed that clock as broke or an idiot. But everybody has something in it. And the hardest people to work with, I've learned, is people who, for whatever reason, feel they need to be on top. They need to be seen as more powerful. They need to have, you know, all the right answers, even in your shop. It doesn't matter. That's just who they are. And then how do I manage myself in that situation so that I have good boundaries, but I'm not disrespectful and that I can protect my organization and my people and how they work so that they can do the best work they do. What that tells me as an interviewer or tells me as a senior executive, just wanting to know you better. What if you were coming into my organization for the first time? What if I was meeting you for the first time at an industry conference? You know, I'm not saying that you meet somebody at an industry conference. You could say, take me back to the place that you were where you did your best work. But but again, if you're if you're interviewing someone and you need to get to know them, 22, 44, 66, I don't care where they are in their career. The answers that you gave me and the lessons that come from this are important. I'm just going to highlight a couple. They have to do with you specifically. They have to do with the organization, the way you do work and the lessons that you would teach other people about that. Telling about you that the people that you worked with always saw in you and you saw in yourself an attitude that whatever it was, it can be done. Another thing is, you know, this is a Marilyn Miglin quote, a beauty maven from years ago. You audition every minute of your life and never forget it, whether it's on the plane sitting next to. And by the way, I have one of my best friends now in my life. We happen to have daughters the same age that I met the same way on a flight from New York probably 10 years ago. And she's a big A executive with a huge company that I happen to work with and Mm -hmm. used to work for. So auditioning every minute of your life, and that to me means dressing for the audition, doesn't mean you have to be wearing a $3,000 suit, but it means you need to be not in a t-shirt and shorts, even if you're going on vacation, because you don't know who you're sitting to on the plane. Mm -hmm. It means that you need to be ready to walk into the chairman's office if you're called. It means that people are watching you and watching how you react, what you look like. Just be ready. Another and the last thing was in that same scene, you were being groomed uh, again at Monsanto, but having that opportunity to be groomed with a group of your peers, it sounds like. And I would say frequently, because you and I both have loud voices. I think it's Chicago. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We scream. 
So you were with a group of your peers and whatever the disagreement of what was right for the business, the case that you were working on, you had no idea that people were watching. But in fact, it's kind of like being, I don't know, I've never been in this situation, but on the police shows, you're behind some kind of a mirror where people are watching you. That's yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think of going to Catholic school for years and years. I can remember the nuns sitting out in the hall trying to see if you were singing the notes right or not singing the notes right. Mm-hmm. Same kind of deal. People are watching. People are looking at. My expectation, if you were one of the people on the outside, one of the senior leaders of HR, you'd want to know how respectfully they handled that, how collaboratively they came to a conclusion, how justified their viewpoint was. Mm-hmm. for the health of the business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, think as a leader what you'd want. You'd want to know how they came to resolution and then you'd want to know how they treated each other after the disagreement. So as a senior leader, that's what I'd want for my people. I'd want to know how they can get along, how they can make it work. And are they pinched with each other mm-hmm. afterwards? You know, there's, mm-hmm. you know, siblings. Are you pinching each other afterwards? Mm-hmm. Are you bickering with each other afterwards, or can you put it aside and move forward? Mm-hmm. Easier for some people than others. Mm-hmm. Takes more time for some people than others. Mm-hmm. Doesn't take any time at all for a salesperson. I'm a salesperson. <laughs> Rolls right off my back. You don't like me or what I have to say? No problem. And I'm not mad at you anymore because I could care less. It only means no for now. Doesn't mean no for, you know, but I'm the guy that sent a, you know, sent a prospect, a cowboy boot with the flowers in it because I needed to talk to him and he wouldn't return my call. <laughs> so creative, you yeah. know, creative resolution of an issue. So that's what I got from what you had to say. So do I want to take you to the next step in an interview? Yes, because you demonstrated to me, you were able to listen to lessons in your career. You were very self-aware yeah. of what those lessons meant for you. And you were also very self-aware, I think this is a most important, very self-aware of the effect that you had on the colleague that you disagreed with. And that means I want to push you to the next level. That's what an interviewer wants to see. Mm -hmm. Are you self-aware? Do you have knowledge of how that affects your career? Mm -hmm. And do you have knowledge of how you have an effect on other people, Mm -hmm. colleagues? All the buttons in self, what is it? Emotional intelligence, right? It's about you. It's about how you impact other individuals. And then from there, how do you show up in an organization or a team? Right. Because, you know, Debbie Walsh is five, five big things. The ability to articulate a vision and get people to march into hell to execute it. Mm -hmm. The ability to be a change agent in a changing economy, in a changing industry, in a changing world order, which we have right now. You know, the third one, the ability to drive financial results through teams of people. Nobody makes money just to make money. And it doesn't happen. You don't make money for me. Your team makes money for me. And your team makes money for you. So how do you drive financial results? You know, if I said before, it'd be lovely if we were all Jesuits and looking to do it for the glory of God, but we're looking to make money, right? Yeah. You know, the fourth one to me is the ability to develop people. We all develop people that are downstream, as you call it, Mm -hmm. downstream from us. People underneath us, beneath us, whatever you want to call it, you got to develop the people next to you. You got to develop your team, the people that you work with, your colleagues Mm -hmm. to help them. Why would you say that in this meeting? You know, maybe a little nicer than that, but gee, when you said that, it might've made people uncomfortable because it's, it's a learning experience. Same way you'd want somebody to do it to you. 
geez, Debbie, you just exploded that. Don't do that again. It'll make somebody, you know, and you've got to be able to develop the people above you because the CEO and that C-suite team, they need help too. It is pretty Mm -hmm. lonely at the top. Mm -hmm. They don't all get it. And they're vying for different Mm -hmm. jobs. Mm -hmm. So that development, and my last one is ethics and integrity. If you don't have the ability to execute it with ethics and integrity, go join the mob. You're not going to be able to make it in corporate America. (laughs) My second question is maybe easier. I want you to give me two things you've done anywhere in your career that you're really proud of. I have a lot of things as I look back. You know, again, I think I'm a unicorn and that at this age I can look back and I really don't have, um, I only have one regret in my life and it has nothing to do with work. (laughs) Two things. One was when I was at budget, um, this was, you know, okay. So for you, you um, millennials and people, let me just say anybody younger than probably 40, you may or may not remember this, but there was a time when we had, you know, 485 computers, they were pretty much dumb screens where you just project stuff. They weren't really like we have right now. And one of the things that I'd, I'd inherited a team that had actually invented a way in which we could do all the training we needed to do with our frontline people, those folks that when you go up to get your reservation, they had to be trained on how to use the system, how to collect cash, how to talk to customers. I mean, the whole thing had to be done. We did it virtually. Every year, we had to train somewhere between almost 3,000 people, regardless of their educational level, their um, ability to speak English, their background, their ability to read didn't matter. Once they got to the, they were hired, we had to figure out a way to train them. And the time that I was there at budget, we, we were able to pull it together that in seven days, we got them trained on the screen to use the equipment. And we had a 98% success rate, which was at that time, totally incredible because nobody thought you could ever teach anybody virtually. So remember, my team, my training team never met any of these people face to face. And they were going through every week training as many people as we needed. We had to keep all the equipment up. We The Internet wasn't as stable as it is now, but they managed to do that. And we took it to the next level. We took it into the call center and moved from Because if you know anything about, it's a very seasonal business. Rent a car is a very seasonal business. And so you hire a lot of people, 1,500, 2,000 people in the early season. Then you get through summer and then you have to lay them all off. But the key is, is that you make your money on the calls. And we had to reduce the time people were actually in the, the training to, I think we got it down to like six weeks. By the time they got through, they were through the system, all the way up to being what we call the average, within the average band of the call system, it added something like $3,000 a minute to the bottom line. Running that team was probably the most prideful moment I could ever have because I didn't do it. All I needed to do was get everything out of the way so that group of people could actually make this happen. And it turned out that budget was purchased by, at that time, Avis for that one reason, or it was one of two reasons at that particular time. But they wanted to, they wanted that system because it was such a game changer at that particular time. The second one, I, I had created a new higher orientation program that brought everybody in globally 
to meet each other. So they were cohorts. They were anywhere from 45 to 100 people in the room, cohorts. But it was always about the senior level individuals coming in to do it like an Oprah style interview with them. They got the business side of what was going on. And at the time, it was when Monsanto was in some, you know, the press for for um, bovine somatotrophin, BST additives to milk, seeds, et cetera. And we were getting a lot of positive and negative press. But what we decided to do, or one of the issues that came up is we had people whose neighbors found out that they were working for us. And of course, we had many divisions, and most of them never even worked for that particular division. But they were really taking some heat from their neighbors. So we had the CEO come in, Dick Mahoney, and he sat with them, talking to them about what commitment was and why this was something with the number of people that were going, the population problems, other countries that could not feed their people, et cetera. And he gave this impassioned speech to do that. And what we wound up doing is creating an army of people who could talk to neighbors and tell them why we were doing it and what was really happening and what and how it moved through and where we were changing. And the thing that got me was not only Mahoney coming in and talking about it, but I can't remember the guy who was the head of our marketing program and our marketing period. And I remember him coming in and having conversation because, you know, people were peppering them. It was an honest conversation. And it was getting not, I wouldn't say heated, but it was tense. And he started talking about the ethics program inside Monsanto and how we had this model of just because we can't doesn't mean we should. And the rigor at which things went through the company. Now, you know, Monsanto, as we know it, is gone. It they knew one of the reasons that you were able to pull me out is they knew that they were going to be bought broken up and gone away. So that company doesn't exist. I don't know what Bayer does now and the other companies that bought it, but I remember how that shifted. I wound up winning an award for that particular program because everyone walked out of there, all these new employees, and then the tide turned because people who were tenured there, been there a while, were pissed because they didn't get to come and sit and listen to this kind of cadre of every leader of every business had to show up and talk the whole thing. And it was such an intimate, now I call it an Oprah style conversation with the heads of the business and even people inside that weren't the head of the business, but lower in the business had different roles across it, talking about the choices they made, how it affected other people and what the business meant to them. And as well as the numbers and the products and the services and other things. But I remember that. And I remember being at that particular one, so amazed that these people, men and women, could take the heat from new hire employees, that the people we hired had the skills to question the CEO's direction. That just wasn't done. But we had created such an open environment for conversation that that's how it went. Now, that wasn't everywhere, but it was in that room. And I think those two things, if somebody said, what's your legacy? I don't know if I have a legacy, but I remember that I know that we change people's lives in those moments. And so this is about Denise. This is about what I get to know about Denise. This is about interviewing Denise. And so what came out of that to me 
the first thing that came out was the last, almost the last thing you said. As you described this proud of moment from Monsanto, you went through a very great uh, description, an emotional description. So I felt like I was in that room. And I've been in those rooms with CEOs Mm -hmm. and people who are um, shareholders of companies have Mm -hmm. gone to shareholder meetings when Mm -hmm. Jamie Dimon from Chase is on the spot or, you know, whoever is on the spot, the CEO or a board member. And if you haven't, you've watched them on TV, you know, and- You've watched President Biden be put on the spot. You've yep. watched our presidents, our leaders, our our senators be on the spot. We've all seen tough questions being asked. So we can believe that. But you came all the way through a very emotional, descriptive uh, an opportunity for me to feel like I was there. So I'm engaged, right? You've enticed me with what the what the problem is. You've engaged me with what the meeting was about. And you waited all the way of of telling me everything about it. And one of the last things you said was, and I won an award for that program. You are so much a servant leader, Denise. You are so much of a person who puts the business in the forefront and your team in the forefront. And you're the last guy on that slate. Mm -hmm. So someone else would have led with, I won an award for the next thing I'm going to tell you. Mm. Not maybe in that way, but they would have started with that. You didn't start with that. You finished with that. Mm-hmm. And you finished with your words. I was amazed that our people could take the heat and come up with questions, come up with answers for the questions they were getting. Yeah. And again, at a different time, you know, it was a different time in your life and a different time in industry. Unusual to have a CEO with his or her employees peppered with uncomfortable questions Mm -hmm. because now it's done all the time. 25 years ago, it was never done. You didn't question the CEO. No, never, ever. So that's just a different, it's a different generational thing. We've we've spun into Mm -hmm. a different. So that was really important for me to get as an interviewer out of you. You are about collaboration. You are about team first. You are about getting the business questions answered. And then there's Denise that won an award. That's what that mm-hmm. said to me, that example, mm-hmm. your budget example. Well, I totally get, you know, that technology has moved so fast from when you were at budget, but as a consumer at mm-hmm. the rental car, you know, business, we've come to, you know, we go to the rental car place and, you know, I'm a gold or premier member of whatever that yep. is. If my name isn't on the board when I get there and I got to go to the meeting and I'm already late and it's pouring rain, I'm aggravated that I can't get there fast enough because mm-hmm. couldn't you just do your job to put my name on the board? In mm-hmm. this case, it wasn't putting the name on the board. It was, you know, whatever budget did at that time. But we all know that enterprise changed the system when they hit and when they hired kids right out of college. Junior uh, college. Junior yeah, college. Exactly. Junior college. Yeah. So out of junior college or out of college, it was their first job out of school or their yep. first job while they were in school and they were spinning quickly. They changed the way people hired for that business. Mm-hmm. You changed the way customer service could be done at that time for the business. And the ability to take 3,000 people or even 1,500 people and move it from six weeks training to seven days of training, mm-hmm. 
unbelievable. And what you said at the very bottom, you went through the whole thing, again, made me there because I'm a consumer. Everyone has rented a car. Mm -hmm. I could understand what you're talking about. It doesn't make any difference if it was a 485 computer or instant now. I still could understand it because I'm the consumer of why if it's not exactly there, what do you mean you don't have my driver's license? I'm a gold member. I'm a platinum member, whatever it is. So the impatience that happens at the counter, you were able to show people in a way how that impatience, whatever point in time it was, was changed. And again, what did you tell me? You didn't lead with Avis bought budget because you did this. At the very end, you said Avis bought us for the ability to have done that program. And so again, you're confirming for me as a candidate, it's the business first, it's the team first, it's the people first, and then it's Denise. You gotta make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just two questions. And it's two questions if people think about if you have, I want to spin it a little bit, because sometimes I'd like to say 50% of the time, interviewers are lousy at interviewing. Yeah. They just not good. No one's taught them how to interview, or they have a I'm going to say hardcore. They have a hardcore methodology that they feel has worked for them since 1942. And they don't change that hardcore methodology that they've invented for themselves or picked up from somebody else to meet the market, to meet the candidate, to meet the company that they're working for now. Mm -hmm. And they pride themselves, and sometimes rightly so, they pride themselves, and this has always worked for me. If you're a woman, blue eyeshadow worked for you in the 70s, mm -hmm. but it's not going to work in 2023, Yeah, right? You know, stiletto heels worked for you on the streets of New York when you were 25, mm -hmm. and not going to work so much when you're 44. Yeah. Better take those shoes off because you're going to be falling in the grates, right? Yeah. I hit my golf ball with a particular club and it worked great. And I used a particular ball. And you know what? Technology has made those balls fly further. Mm -hmm. And the club drive that ball further. And if I'm still using the clubs that I used in 1990, everybody around me is driving further than I am because I yeah. haven't kept up with the technology. Yeah. Same kind of thing. So that methodology that you use for interviewing people may not be the right methodology for now yeah. for the people that you're using. And you might want to look at asking different kinds of questions. So... Back to what I learned from those questions for you. If you get stuck with a lousy interviewer, you can respect them. They can be the senior vice president of whatever, and you're interviewing with them, and they're not controlling the interview or they're over-controlling over the interview. You must have with you the answers to these questions, and you're not going to leave that interview unless that interviewer knows those answers. Mm -hmm. So somehow you're going to have to maneuver into the answers that you give to the interviewer, what makes you tick, what you value, things you're most proud of. And that doesn't mean you take control away from the interviewer, which is never a good idea. Right. Most people do not want that to happen. Yeah. So you're not going to take over the interview. You're just going to slide in. Here's something that's really important, uh, you know, that's, that is really important to me. I am a collaborative leader. I am a collaborative team member. I really like to make sure that I meet the needs of the business while I'm doing X, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But work on that 
25 word couple of answers that you want to make sure you're not leaving until they know that about you. Someplace, somehow it will matter to them when they review what they talk to you about. It's not what you said. It's how you made them feel. Right. Thank you so much for doing this. This was, this was, uh, was challenging and embarrassing and I'm sweating um, probably all the things you do in an interview, right? Because you want to do well, you want to try to be concise, and it's hard sometimes hearing feedback, even if it is good feedback. And I love you dearly. Well, and I love you, and I love doing this with you. This is just the best thing. And I think we help people by just getting an opportunity to listen to how we've kind of run our careers and the twists and turns of our careers and things that are important to us, because it really comes down to values. I want to do my best work wherever I go, and I want to give the expertise both broad and deep of what I've learned. And that would be at 22, at 44, at 66. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. You need to be able to move the company forward. You need to be able to do as, and that's going to be my new quote from, you know, from Denise, I always felt it can be done. And that's absolutely true. When you join a company, you need to feel like you can make a difference. Like, you know, you can do the job. You're going to learn. You're going to learn the company. You're going to learn the differences. I always tell people coming into a position, and especially now when people are changing less than two years, you're changing for more money. You know, to me, it's if it makes a big difference in your mortgage payment or your rent, you change. If it doesn't, what are you going for? If it's horrible, get out. Yeah. Like, you know. Why do you want to be married to somebody who doesn't want to be married to you? Get out mm-hmm. if it's bad. Mm-hmm. But if it's not bad, it usually takes 18 months to two years to really understand the organization yes. and to and really to be, comfortable. to be comfortable, to understand who has the power and who has the powerful title. And they're usually two different things. And those are important lessons, I think, to learn. All right, guys, um, you know, in the show notes, we will have ways in which you can get a hold of Debbie if you have extra questions. We really do um, deal with questions that people send in either here or once a month. There's Mighty Networks chat on Saturdays, and you can find out more about that. Um, Also, if you didn't get it during the holiday season, I gave away 12 gifts from Denise. And one of them, which I did not know was going to be a part of this, (laughs) was 15 questions that you need to have answers for if you're going to nail the interview. It's a free copy. Um, you can go to my website, get a copy of it, um, and you can begin to think about what are the questions and why people are asking for them. As Debbie said, you're probably going to meet people who are not as skilled as she is. She's an amazing person, an amazing leader, and an amazing interviewer, even if she is a salesperson. <laughs> However, there are some standard questions that you can expect that you're going to get from people who are maybe not be as amazing as she is about this. And you need to be prepared for them. You need to have thought about them. You need to understand why and what somebody might be looking for from the answer so that you are prepared to come from your heart and to understand what it is that makes you tick and what it is that you're looking for. Because people don't leave companies because of the money. I, money comes last. The reason I took that phone call is I was dissatisfied. You convinced me to leave because of the dollar. If I was happy, I don't take the phone calls. So you need to understand why you wouldn't take a phone call. What's the company that's going to make you feel so good that you won't take the phone call unless life throws you a curve? That's it. And with that, Debbie, 
I hope you have an amazing weekend. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Well, as I said before, this is a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for following me. And if you really, really want to make things better and help me get the word out, please go like this wherever you're listening to your podcast. Follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. All of that's in the show notes. And for doing that, go to my website and click on the uh, network and you'll be able to get some free gifts that will help you figure out how to be the best leader that you can be. As I always say, if you like it, share it. If you don't like it, share it, because I guarantee it will definitely help you become the most remarkable leader you can be.